So, Will. Yes? This movie ends with an iconic death scene. Well, not the final scene, but towards the ending. Sure, you're talking about the special cigarettes. The special cigarettes, a wildly cool way to die and take a villain out with you. I love how it's set up when the man who claims to be Count Fujiwara is captured and is being brought imprisoned back to the estate where most of the movie is set. And he insists on smoking three cigarettes at once because he wants to smoke all his normal cigarettes. So that later on, when he is imprisoned and asks for a cigarette, he will get one of the mercury-laced ones. Which... It took me a bit to put it together. I assume he just wanted to smoke a lot of cigarettes. It plays like a great joke in the moment. Yeah. And then... Which is what's great about so much of this movie, where you have all these scenes that work on their own as being really compelling and funny and thrilling and whatever. And then as the movie continues to unfold, those previous scenes take on new meanings. Right. Ugh, this movie's great. I can't wait to talk about it. It's so cool. I watched it. I started it at like 10 o'clock at night. And I was just, like, cheering on my couch. It was fantastic. But I do want to ask, what are some of your other favorite kind of ridiculous deaths in a movie? I mean, one I always think about is in Jurassic Park when the lawyer, Donald Gennaro, gets eaten while he's sitting on the toilet. I was also thinking about a toilet-based one. And what gets me particularly about the Gennaro one is he doesn't die in the book. He, like, makes it to the end. He's on the helicopter that leaves. And in the movie... Steven Spielberg and David Kapp and all of them were like, you know what? We should kill the lawyer, and we should do it while he's hiding in a toilet. That feels targeted. There might be some baggage there. Or just, you know, lawyer jokes, which I feel like were even more widespread and popular at that point than they are now. The lawyer joke has kind of died down. Yeah. But in 1993, it's like, who do you want to kill? Obviously the lawyer. Yeah. Not the villain. No, the villain is what? The T-Rex? Everyone loves her. Yeah, she's a queen. I was also thinking about a toilet death, which is in Pulp Fiction, when John Travolta just gets mowed down on the toilet in his, like, absurd clothes that he gets from Quentin Tarantino's character. Look, there's something a little bit funny about someone eating it in a toilet. It's such a vulnerable time. Right, you got your pants down around your ankles. And it has biblical roots, I guess, because isn't that how King Saul dies? Is that how he dies? I don't know. I think that's how King Saul dies. I think he's killed while he's pooping. They did not cover that in VeggieTales. I can imagine. But at the time, you know, people would go away from everyone to poop, but you still would need guards because you're so attackable. Yeah, of course. I need to make sure I'm not making this up. (laughs) I remember vividly discussing people pooping in the Bible. I don't think it's poop, but one of my favorite bathroom, like, old-timey bathroom moments in a movie is in the piano when Holly Hunter is, like, going on a hike through the muddy forests of New Zealand in the 19th century, and she has to go to the bathroom. So, like, the people who are walking with her have to, like, hold up sheets so that she can have privacy going to the bathroom, just, like, in the middle of the woods. The things we do for privacy. Yeah. Hold on, I still need to Google this and figure this out. It may not have been Saul, but I feel like there's someone. I think Saul may have been killed by Philistines. I think it might be like one of the stories of King David's goodness was that he didn't kill Saul while Saul was pooping. Okay, here it is. Yes, it is is David having the opportunity to kill Saul. This is in uh, 1 Samuel. This section in at least the New American Bible is titled David Spares Saul. 
Okay. Saul found a cave which he entered to relieve himself. David and his men were occupying the inmost recesses of the cave. David's servants said to him, This is the day about which the Lord said to you, I will deliver your enemy into your hand. Do with him as you see fit. So David moved up and stealthily cut off an end of Saul's robe. Afterward, however, David regretted that he had cut off an end of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, they do not attack Saul while he's pooping. Okay. I was right that this was something we would have discussed in Bible study. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure kids would fixate on this. Yeah, there's a reason I remember it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I do want to give a shout out to perhaps one of the best versions of this, which comes from a TV show where... On this better set, also be a toilet death. No, it, I think it's better where it is George's fiance's death on Seinfeld from <laughs> licking poisonous stamps. Which has been like litigated and relitigated for 20 years. I think it's so funny. It's terrible. But it's so funny. It's very funny, but like, there's a lot of reporting that she was written out of the show for being too funny. Which is terrible, but it makes for a funny TV show. Every moment that Susan is on screen crushes. Yeah. And it seems exactly something that Jerry Seinfeld would do. You're talking about Jerry Seinfeld in the Pop-Tart movie? Oh my god, I, <laughs> I totally forgot about that movie. You forgot that Jerry Seinfeld is writing and directing and starring in Unfrosted, the Pop-Tart story? How could I forget? A movie based on a one-line joke? Oh my god. Okay. Recalibrating. Snapping back to reality. Wow. Anyway, that scene is great because it also just shows how terrible of a person George is. Yes, which is sort of the driving ethos of the show is that you constantly be reminded that they're bad. And in this case, it's he didn't help at all with the wedding, and somehow that means he survives, and Susan dies. Yeah! Fantastic. Ugh. But a death very much not played for comedy is the death of Count... I don't know if we ever learned his real name, but Count Fujiwara. I think Fujiwara is his real name, and it's just the Count that gets appended to it by the Englishmen who see him trying to be fancy. Or whatever the Korean pronunciation of the same characters would be right in this week's episode the handmaiden welcome to we love the love a hollywood romance podcast i'm mark and i'm gay and i'm will and i'm a ginger this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world does hollywood romance actually make any sense and are these people actually dateable or even likable it doesn't matter if the romance is a ming plot or a one-scene flirtation we will dig in and see what's there and as you said this week, we are talking about Park Chan-wook's 2016 psychological, at times sexy thriller, The Handmaiden. I would call it an erotic thriller. Yeah, absolutely. A throwback to the erotic thrillers, but several steps above anything out of the 90s. You think this is better than Disclosure? Uh, I would go out on a limb and say, yes, it is. But I'm just thinking, like, because that movie was also kind of a thriller, and this one had zero scenes in which you see, like, a wireframe lady body with a JPEG of Demi Moore's face at the top of it. There is a sad lack of VR in this movie set in Japanese-occupied Korea. It's like they weren't even trying. God, this movie is so good. It's so cool! That's just what I kept writing down. (laughs) Had you seen this movie before? No, honestly, the only Park Chan-wook I had seen is Decision to Leave, which I saw in theaters last year. And the AFI is doing a retrospective in July, so I'm looking forward to catching some of those before the old boy re-release this fall. I don't think I've seen any of his other movies, 
And all I knew about this movie going in was that it was about lesbians. And I, as such, assumed it was going to be a period lesbian drama in which they're just, like, yearning for each other. Was oh. not expecting a thriller. So, knowing Park Chan-wook's stuff, even if I haven't hadn't seen a lot of it, I assumed there would be some degree of thrillerness going on. Although I didn't know just how much. I feel like I also knew it involved lesbians. And the one thing I really remembered from... I guess I remembered two things from its theatrical release. One is, people said it was really good. And the number two thing I remember from the theatrical release was a lot of discourse about scissoring. I was surprised at the length of the scissoring scene. So I went back, I like dove back in to try to find the coverage from 2016 talking about this. And the results seem to have been inconclusive. There was no broad consensus <laughs> as to whether this was believable or not. Yeah, I, I don't know that much about lesbian sex, full disclosure. So I can't really speak to the depiction of it in this movie. No, and here's the thing. Even if people find that it's not a thing they enjoy, which I very much believe, I do believe that people would try it. And I certainly believe that these people would try it, given the background that they have coming into this sexual encounter. Yeah, especially Lady Hideko. Right, where her knowledge of sex comes from reading erotica for men so that's the kind of thing that she's gonna have in her head as that's what sex is this movie rocks it's so cool so uh, the handmaiden is directed by park chen wook as we said the great korean director he won the best director award at the Cannes film festival last year for decision to leave and he co-wrote the screenplay with chung Seo kyung based on the novel fingersmith by sarah waters which is interesting because that novel is set in Victorian Britain. I think it works in both settings. Yeah, I read a little bit about the novel, and the setup is the same pretty much entirely. The ending's a little bit different because in the ending of the novel, they circle back to, like, the baby farm. Hmm. And there's a lot of business involving that place and, and the sale of babies and stuff like that. Whereas this movie just leaves it all behind. Which I enjoy. Yeah. Not a lot of movies with happy endings for lesbians. No, I mean, we talked about that on our Carol episode all those years ago. And this one was a very fun exception. Well, yeah, because they get to be sneaky and, and do crimes. Yeah. Maybe commit arson. <laughs> yes. I would argue, yes, commit arson. Yeah. Which, cool. <laughs> yeah. Not great. Look, Mora's not here. So I think we can just boldly say crime bad. Crime is bad. A lot of crime and in this be, movie. Like, people know what crimes we're talking about. Like, we're talking about, like, people's lives in peril. Crimes that directly harm the lives of others in particular. Yeah. Arson, murder, chopping off someone's fingers, uh, driving a screwdriver through someone's hands. I'm just hypothesizing. These are just ideas coming to me from nowhere. Uh, feeding a person to an octopus? Yeah, that would be a crime, and I think it would be bad. Um, yeah, don't stand behind that one. It's such a big octopus. An octopus that big is only staying in a tank that small if it's reached an agreement with the person who owns the tank. That octopus must have a larger home. That octopus is party to everything that's going on. It is in the know. Is the octopus ultimately the guy at the top? Maybe. Maybe. 
But I do want to circle back to the book that is called Fingersmith. Yeah. Because I, like, understand that I think that is an old term for pickpocket. Yes. But it's just so sexual. That's what makes it a perfect title. You know exactly what you get when you go into a book called Fingersmith. Yeah. I'd be a little interested. There is an adaptation of the novel that's set in Victorian England. Now, it is by the BBC, so I don't think it's going to be quite as saucy as The Handmaiden. You don't think there'll be a depiction of scissoring? I don't think they're going to, like, stick bells inside each other on screen, basically. Wow. (laughs) This movie. But there is a BBC miniseries starring Sally Hawkins as the maid and Elaine Cassidy as the lady. Uh, And Charles Dance is in it. You'll never guess what role Charles Dance plays in this story. (laughs) I'm assuming a very nice man who is to the side and unrelated to the plot. Yeah, he he actually plays the octopus. (laughs) Uh, What casting? Yeah, look, you hire him to do something. And he's good at it. He'll deliver. I do think the addition of the colonial lens makes for a very interesting story as well. Well, because so much of the movie is about different people's ambitions, right? And they're, in a lot of cases, class striving. But the fact that sort of the main villain, uh, Kozuki, is a Korean man who has tried to assimilate into Japanese culture. He married a Japanese wife, but also he has this great admiration for the British. And so his house is like part British architecture, part Japanese architecture. And so... He himself is a fraud. He's selling fraudulent recreations of the erotica in his library in order to stay solvent. And his fraud is about achieving a certain station in society, just like everybody else's. Just like Count Fujiwara is pretending to be a count and trying to get money. And our handmaiden is trying to get a bunch of money so she can advance in society. Everybody's doing the same thing. Yeah, he is particularly reviled for being a collaborator. Right. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons he's a big target, too, in a way, is because at the beginning, everyone does make a big deal out of the fact that he sold out the independence of Korea to gain wealth. Yeah. He worked as a translator for the Japanese during the period where they were annexing Korea, which would have been around 1905. But he's still, you know, it's that classic story of he's still not fully accepted in Japanese high society. So he's still constantly striving. No, and it's also worth keeping in mind that he's a a little weirdo. An abusive pervert. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a better way to put it. Like, no shame in enjoying pornography. Even to the level of (laughs) being a collector. But when you consume it in such an immoral way. Right, when basically you hold evening readings of erotica where it's being read by like a 12-year-old. Who is being forced into it through threats of physical violence and death. Yes. He seems like a bad guy. There was a moment where I was worried that the punishment would only fall on Fujiwara and not on, I don't even remember his name. Uh, Uncle Kozuki. Kozuki. But no, as soon as as he got a cigarette and it was the blue cigarette, I was like, all right, here we go. He's going to release like (laughs) anthrax or something. Something's going down. Which rocks. Which rocks. And also is consistent with the fact that he's a guy who, when he made his deal with Hideko, he offered her opium as a way out if she was ever in a situation. So we know that he's the kind of guy who will use drugs to commit suicide rather than submit to a situation he doesn't want to be in. 
He is someone that would have the cyanide tooth capsule. And you got to make sure that's not the tooth capsule that you wear down with the thimble, because that would be unfortunate. That moment. I was, like, also just thrown off by the concept of grinding down a tooth and with the casualness with which it happens. That I couldn't focus on the sensuality. You don't make your household servants when your tooth is bothering you just whittle it down until it's smooth again? That's just, it feels like bad oral hygiene is both the cause and the solution. Well, sure, but this is before modern dentistry. Yes, but also, I don't know, filing down of teeth, I guess, is something that shows up in many cultures, but... Yeah. What is going on with her tooth that it's too sharp? Like, how does that happen? It means she chipped it. Yeah. Probably on one of those big lollipops she's always sucking on. Do you think lollipops were that big a deal in, like, 1920s Japanese-occupied Korea? I don't know, but this lady's got a whole drawer full of them next to her bed. Uh. I mean, I, in seeing that, and I don't know if this is a thing that was in Park's head or anybody else involved in the movie, but just because this is so much about the, the grooming and abuse of a woman, the lollipops made me think of Lolita. Yeah. I mean, there is an element of to, like, how much was Suki taken advantage of. Because she is so much younger than Hideko. Yeah, that's not really what I was talking about. I was talking about the fact that Hideko has this drawer of them next to her bed. And I don't think she's able to request this stuff. It's being provided. Oh, yeah. She is enjoying the lollipops at the very least. Yeah. God, this movie is so creepy. In like a good, like creepy thriller way. Oh, yeah. I just, poor Suki. (laughs) She's thrown in way over her head. She is. It works out okay, ultimately. I know. She gets a happy ending, and I love that. She gets a hat and a fake mustache. No, Hidako's the one in the hat and fake mustache. No, she's the one in the hat and the fake mustache, because Hidako has had her passport changed to have Suki's name and photo. Oh my and god, her that's photo right. I forgot the the passport was already changed, because they said Suki, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's because they swapped passport. Oh my god. Multiple levels. Yeah. The weird influence also of just, like, westernization in the background adds an interesting element to it, too. Like, Cosby's love of Germany. Yeah, which is one of the western countries that had the biggest influence on Japan. Right. Have you seen pictures of the Tokyo main train station? I don't know if I have. But I know that, like, after the opening of Japan the government sends an expedition around to, like, look at different societies and figure out what modern society they should model themselves after. And they're like, oh, the Germans seem great. Yeah. Hold on, I'm going to send you a picture. And this is Imperial Germany, where part of the appeal is, okay, it's a country that, like, has some elements of democracy, but still a role for nobility, still a role for an emperor. Not going too crazy here. Yeah, that does look like German architecture. Yep, and it's just, like, right in the middle of Tokyo. Yeah, it's so weird. I love looking at Japanese art from that period. Where it's so clearly Japanese in style, but half the people are wearing, like, 19th century suits. Which follows on a period in which there's Western art that is also very clearly inspired by Japanese art styles immediately following the opening of Japan at the same time. Look, you can get a lot of cool art out of the U.S. Navy sailing into a country's harbors and announcing plans to bombard them unless they begin trading. Start trading. Yeah. God, gunboat diplomacy is not diplomacy. (laughs) No, it's just blackmail. (laughs) So, you know, The Handmaiden is this really great thriller 
But so much of it is wrapped up in the relationships between the characters that I feel like the best way for us to talk about is just going to be to dive in. Yeah, I think so. Like we said, it's directed by Park Chan-wook. It's based on the novel Fingersmith. And it's set at some point during the, the Japanese occupation of Korea. I suspect... The sense I get is that it's before the wars in China start. So probably during the 1920s. Yeah, that's the vibe. That's what the cars look like, too. Yeah. But there is still a strong military presence. Uh, how did this perform at the box office, though? I am curious. Um, It did okay in the U.S. It didn't have a huge release, but it did all right. And it, and it did like fairly well everywhere that it was released without being a gigantic hit. Okay. It does get a lot of attention from critics. It's shortlisted for a lot of critics' awards, nominated for a lot of critics' awards, mostly in the foreign language category. It did win the BAFTA for Best Film Not in the English Language, hmm. but was unfortunately not nominated for the Oscar. This was the year that Oscar Farhadi won for The Salesman and like famously could not attend the Oscars because Trump's first travel ban was in place and he could not come from Iran. Oh, right. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> Yeah, but it feels kind of weird that Park has never been nominated for the Oscar. I expected it to happen last year for Decision to Leave, but he just hasn't cracked it at this point, and it feels dumb. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the lesbian sexuality of this movie is probably working against it in the Academy still. Yeah, I mean, this is Even a year in 2017. After... Yeah, this is a year after Carol missed the Best Picture nomination that everyone had been expecting for it. Which, I mean, if there's a movie that feels like a Best Picture nominee, it's Carol. Yeah. Are you aware of Todd Haynes' new movie this year? Uh, I am aware of it, but I can't remember in this moment. It's called May-December. Uh, it premiered at Cannes last weekend, as we record. And it's about Natalie Portman as an actress who is going to be portraying the character played by Julianne Moore and like goes to like hang out with her to study her. Oh. That sounds very cool. Right? I'm intrigued. Yeah. I liked Dark Water a lot, but it's fun to have Todd Haynes back in that sort of zone with just like two cool ladies doing stuff. I just hope that it is better than Love Again. I mean, that's a low bar. Are you concerned that it'll be worse than Love Again? No, but it just has like the celebrity interview vibe reminded me of Love Again. I know it's very different, but it's still... I'm going to be excited to see where Love Again places on your top 10 at the end of the year. Um, My goal this year is to make sure I see over 10 movies so it doesn't end up there by default. I love doing that to you. I should probably do it more just as a way of nudging you to the theaters more. Just do more and more bad new releases. I don't want that. <laughs> All right. We'll see. No promises. Uh, I assume there will be some new releases this year on Max, which debuted today as we're recording debuted yesterday yesterday okay i didn't realize it would be a new app i don't care for that a hilariously bad business strategy but a nice mirror of the fact that when hbo max launched it took like four months for it to have a roku app does it not have a roku app yet no i'm the saying the one? original hbo max took like four yeah. months to get a roku app and right. so in a nice echo of that they've continued with poor ui design by saying, your HBO Max app is still there, but it doesn't do anything. So you have to download a separate app. Why are they so bad at this? And yet have, like, the best content? What's funny is that, I don't know how much you've been tracking this story. If you go into Max and you look at movies, where in HBO Max it would list the director, the writers, the producers. On Max, 
all of those people are grouped together under the label creators. That's so bizarre. Yes. Uh, It also is particularly tone deaf at a time where the heads of these companies are trying to resolve or avoid strikes by people who care a lot about their credits. Right, with multiple guilds. And the DGA was very much the one that it seemed like maybe wouldn't strike, but they are not happy about this. Uh, Watching Zaslav get heckled and booed at the commencement speech he was giving was incredible. Look, we're recording on May 24th, so we don't know how the SAG vote's going to go. We certainly don't know what's going to happen with the DGA. But it really feels like this is a, a summer of strikes in Hollywood. Yeah. It's looking that way. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's Sony coasting by without streaming. And bragging about what a great business decision it was. I loved when in December of 2020, Warner Brothers announced that movies were going to go day and date on HBO Max the next year. The head of Sony Pictures was like, yeah, we've been getting a lot of calls from people who are interested in working with us because we don't have a streaming service. Sony is just constantly rubbing it in everyone's face that they're not losing billions of dollars on a streaming service. Right, Sony doesn't have the ability to throw movies like Love Again just online. They've got to put them in theaters. Oh, uh, good for them. Yeah. But also, I feel like Sony Pictures is always going to be subsidized by the highly successful Sony PlayStation. I mean, that's the thing, right? Where that's effectively one of these tech company studios like Apple and Amazon. Yeah. but Apple in particular. They do have a much longer history in filmmaking. Well, yeah. So I do think, I feel like Sony Pictures is much more involved in the studio system than Apple. They are. Um, I do still resent it a little bit when a movie starts with the Sony logo. It feels like somebody turned on a computer. Like, just show me the Columbia Pictures thing. I don't need to see Sony attached to it. You could just put a Sony company at the bottom the way that they put, like, a Comcast company at the bottom of the universal world. You know what I wouldn't want before a movie? A Comcast logo. You know what I do want before a movie? specifically the startup screen of the PlayStation 2. Well, then you should go see... What's the movie? What's the racing PlayStation game? Gran Turismo? (laughs) Gran Torino? No, that's the Clint Eastwood movie. Oh. I think it's called Gran Turismo. Are they making... They're making a movie of it. It comes out in August. It is allegedly based on a true story. All I know is the trailer I saw about, like, a team of video game drivers who become real race car drivers awful it's the latest playstation movie after what was that tom holland movie that i saw that was bad i don't know the one where he jumps out of a plane i saw it in 40 uncharted uncharted yeah so riding high off the success of bad movie uncharted playstation is back with gran turismo they're really trying because they also had that um the ratchet and clank movie You know, I totally forgot about that. And that one was just the video game. Oh, was it? Like, I think it was basically just the first video game. And then they re-released for PlayStation 4 the first video game, but matching the plot changes they made to the movie. Interesting. Because it was... That's that's some comics publisher nonsense. I kind of respect it because it is a very interesting way of, like, tying in media while re-releasing a video game but not just like updating the graphics i think i am too much of a comics reader to do anything but but grumble when that sort of thing happens fair enough as the heads of comics companies constantly think that 
the only thing keeping all the audiences going to movie theaters from reading comic books is that the characters don't look enough like they do in the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, that doesn't hold as true for animated movies where the characters do look identical. Yeah, that's true. So it's not that change. It's just like they added villains to the movie from later games who then show up in the remake of Ratchet and Clank based off the film Ratchet and Clank. All right, that's kind of interesting. So the Handmaiden. I was going to say Ratchets and Clanks are the kind of thing that the uncle would have in his basement. (sighs) The basement. It was so much worse than I ever could have imagined. I really thought we weren't going to see it. I didn't think we would either. Especially because I was like, what is that sound when we first see it? It's the sound of his eldritch master. And I was kind of assuming it would just be left there. But I'm glad it is not Hidako or Suki in the basement. Nope. Just a dead uncle, a dead count, and I don't know if the octopus would have died or not. Probably not. Depends on how much the mercury gets into the water. Yeah, he might just be hanging out down there, plotting his next scheme. Well, I mean, it it probably dies because of the very little amount of water in which it is sitting. Yeah, but he can move, and there's a lot of other water around. I guess I could climb the stairs and get into the other pool, but that one's stained with ink now. Hang out with all the books. Oh, what would an octopus do with ink around? Well, you know it's different. I know it's not. (laughs) Every time I click this pen, there's a little bit of octopus juice coming out. If it turned out that there was a conspiracy and most of the world's ink was actually, like, milked from octopuses, I would not be surprised. No, but it does seem like a lot of effort. Seems like more effort than grinding stuff up. Yeah. Uh, so every week, we break down the romantic plot line of a movie into five points to guide conversation. For this week, point one, to give important background, because it is necessary. I was glad you were doing these instead of me. It, it was tough. Um, basically, we're just going to summarize the movie and I will add some decide that new points happen. Yeah, I mean, part of the thing is that the movie's divided into three parts. In the first part, you're watching it all from one character's perspective. In the second part, you jump back to before the first part to watch things from another character's perspective, cutting in between. So you're getting new context for some of the scenes that you've been watching. And then in the third part, you move ahead. Right. But so what that means is you can't talk about the movie in the sort of linear way that we have normally. Yeah. So we are going to kind of, you know, do a bit of the jumping around chronologically just because I think that the buildup of the double reveal is very important to the romantic plotline. Yeah, sure. But for context, the movie starts with Suki as a trained pickpocketer and other crimes, and daughter of a criminal who was hanged by the Japanese government for repeated theft, and works for the owner of a baby mill, as in a puppy mill for babies where they sell orphans to rich people that want a child. Yeah, primarily they're selling Korean orphans to Japanese families to be raised as Japanese people. Right. So they are also participating in this assimilation. Yeah, they are part- They are collaborators in that way. In the novel, one of the last reveals is that the lady, whom she works for as a handmaiden, originally came out of one of these baby mills. Hmm. I but don't- I don't think that's a thing the movie needs. No, it really- I was just going to say the same thing. So she works there, and they are partnered with Fujiwara, Count Fujiwara, his fake name, 
who is a con man who works as a forger for Kozumi to sell forgeries of books that he wants to keep. Right. He's this creepy old abuser who has his collection of erotica. He's running out of money. His rich wife has killed herself. And so in order to stay flush with cash, he sells off the books in his collection. But he doesn't actually want to sell off the books in his collection. So he hires Fujiwara to forge copies. And so as part of this scheme, Fujiwara asks Suki to be the handmaiden to Hidako and convince Hidako to marry him. Because she has, independently, she has her own inheritance coming in. Right, so Hidako is the creepy man's niece. Her mother was the sister of the uncle's wife. And she's effectively been raised as her uncle's ward, like, Judge Turpin style. And just like with Judge Turpin, he is planning to marry her to get her wealth to make himself solvent again. But Fujiwara wants to marry her instead and get money for himself. And then the plan as he tells Suki, is to lock Hidako up in a asylum and take all of her money and things and run away. So Suki agrees. I love the movie starting with a like what looks like a family of two women the same age. One of them's crying as the other one leaves and there's a mom figure. And then you cut and the crying woman is crying because she wants to be the one to go. To get the money and the dresses and the jewels. Yeah. It seems like a almost like Dickensian working class family, but actually they are a bunch of fingersmithing criminals. Oliver Twist style family. Right. So point one, Suki arrives at the manor, the country manor, which is half Japanese style, half English style. It's a really cool set. It is based off of a actual mansion in Japan that is a mix like half English half Japanese style but they made the English style much more gothic yeah which is cool and enhances the the creepiness of it in a way that I love right the interiors are all mostly original and the production designer did win an award for technical achievement at Cannes the year that this competed good because it looks so good yeah but I looked at the pictures of the real mansion. It was like a little disappointed at how nice it looks, like happy. Right. You want it to be always gloomy there. Because in the movie, it is always raining there. Yeah. So Hidako is asleep when she arrives. She peeks into the room, but Hidako is actually, she's told Hidako is asleep, but Hidako is not actually asleep. She's looking out the window, the door really freaks Suki out. She goes to bed. And she begins to work as the handmaiden. She does all the traditional things, but Hidako acts all coy and cool and is like, I don't care if you steal from me or if you curse as long as you never lie to me, which is funny because obviously she is lying through her teeth. Right. They're both fooling each other. They're both fooling each other. She allows Suki to like try on her earrings, try on her dresses. Suki is not the best at keeping in character. Right, and Suki is into all this because she's like, this is going to be my stuff. She's been promised the clothes and the jewelry Right. once her lady is committed to an asylum. And there are brief flashes, very brief, of interest between them at this point. Which kind of brings us to point two, where it's the first time we see Suki giving a bath to Hidako. This is the tooth scene that we were talking about. And you mentioned Benedetta last week when we were talking about 
benediction. The Foley work on Hideko's pointy tooth and just the noises that it's making. It's the most, and I say this as a compliment, the most over-the-top Foley work I've heard since the sex scene in Benedetta. And it goes on for a while. It's this weird clicking sound, which she's just doing on her own for a while, and then Suki comes in with the thimble and just has her hand in Hideko's mouth rubbing it down. And it is this great moment of like, okay, well, this is an escalation because this is like crazily erotic. And you see Hideko start, you know, like gently stroking Suki's arm. Yes. So this is where it gets very, it jumps to the next level. But at the same time, Suki is encouraging Hideko to get close to Count Fujiwara and gives them opportunities to be alone but at the same time is growing increasingly jealous of their relationship. Right, she's convincing herself that this is a good idea because she's like, look, the guy shouldn't have to marry her creepy uncle. That's weird. So better she marry Count Fujiwara. And in the back of her head, she's like, I'd rather she didn't marry Count Fujiwara either. Right. And so she is also demanding to go with Hidako when they run away. Right, that becomes the plan. Like, okay, Count Fujiwara, you can take her away, but I gotta come with her to make sure that you treat her right. Right. Which obviously won't happen. But in the midst of all this, they continue to have these flirty times together, still engaging with the clothes. But like, like for example, the scene where Hideko has Suki try on the dresses and the corset and all of that, that's clearly a part of the scheme. Like, yeah, get her invested in the clothes so she commits to the plan. But also, it again has this like really strong flirty undercurrent. It is extremely sexual in its buildup, and then it climaxes with a sex scene. A climax. Yes. Where Hidako has convinced Suki that she's this innocent woman, and that she doesn't know anything about sex, and is asking Suki about what it'll be like having sex with Count Fujiwara, and to demonstrate, they have sex. Right. Just as a learning experience. Just as a learning experience. So at this point, we do jump forward, and point three is, it's short, but a very sad moment, where they have all run off together, they're in Japan. The plan's in motion. The plan's in motion. As far as Suki knows, they're then gonna (laughs) commit Hidako to the asylum, she's gonna get her money, and it'll be sad not to be with Hidako, but she's got her money and her clothes and her jewels. And so she is at the asylum with Fujiwara and Hidako, and... Suki is the one who is grabbed by the doctors. Right, they've done a little switcheroo. They've done a switcheroo. Hidako pretends to be Suki, the handmaiden, and is like, see, the lady has gone so crazy that she thinks she is a handmaiden. Which would be abnormal behavior if it were true. Which, yes. And so she is sent away to the asylum. It's a stereotypical early 20th century asylum. I did appreciate the introduction of the asylum because I got so many like Shutter Island vibes from this movie with just the creepy manor fortress thing on a rainy hill where everyone's deceiving each other that like the actual integration of the asylum felt very familiar in a way that I appreciated. Her experience, though, is very different from that of Siegfried Sassoon in last week's movie. Yes, that was a nice asylum where there was a nice doctor and they got to put on nice tangos. This one, we see later, she's like eating a rice ball that has a cockroach in it. Yes, but on the plus side, it does burn down. Yes. 
But after she is taken away, this is where we cut to part two of the movie, and we flash back to Hitako's childhood. We watch her being abused by Kozumi's first wife, who is now his chief, like, head of household, Madame Sasaki. I love that detail, that he divorced his wife so he could marry this Japanese woman, but his wife is still hanging around, helping him do all of his horrible things. Basically, they are still married. Yeah. But he only left her for the money. Probably the octopus told him to do it. Yeah. The evil overlord octopus. So then we get to see her childhood up through where she meets Count Fujiwara, and they hatch the plan to fool Suki. Yeah, Fujiwara comes with the plan of like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a dumb girl to be your handmaiden. We're going to dazzle her with nice clothes and jewelry. And then when we all go away together, she's going to go to an asylum in your place. Right. And she agrees. But then we do see her also developing feelings for Suki when we're watching it through her perspective. Right. So it's this great thing where they're both fooling each other, but they're also falling in love with each other at the same time. You know, this, this could be a like airport romance novel. Yeah. Except for, you know, there's, all the horrible stuff that's going on. There's some elements that wouldn't fit in. No, I'm saying that basic element, right? Right. But there's no evil octopus in the airport romance novel. <laughs> Generally, no. I'm really fixating on the octopus because it's nicer to talk about than what's actually going on in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of child abuse in this movie. Which, I'm gonna say, bad. Watching her as, like, a little girl learning to read this hardcore erotica... It's very upsetting. Yeah. Because she starts practicing. She starts basically learning from her aunt, who's the only person in this household that loves her, as a six-year-old. Yeah. Uh, bad. Bad. Her aunt, who supposedly hanged herself from the tree outside, later learned was taken to the basement where she was tortured and probably eaten by the octopus. But this does bring us to point four, which is, you know, before point three chronologically, which is where we see <laughs> Suki and Hidako hatch their plan. It's a triple cross. It, it becomes a triple cl- cross. The two of them, they don't really admit their feelings for each other yet, even though they have had sex. They decide to form a plan to triple cross Fujiwara, take her money once it's all cashed out as an inheritance to escape. And the way they do this is by Suki then knowingly goes into the asylum, but contacts her people who worked in the baby mill to come basically commit arson, set the asylum on fire, and sneak her out. As one does. As you do. That's a human solution to a problem, because an octopus would never think to use fire. They don't know about it. I don't know. This octopus seems to know all. This octopus might know about fire. So then... Hidako uses the opium to spike Fujiwara's drink, kind of seduces him. Well, yeah, because she pours him a drink with a bunch of opium in it to knock him out so she can sneak away, and he keeps not drinking it. So she has to start drinking it herself and then kissing him to shove the opium-laced wine into his mouth. Yeah, and eventually, obviously, he only passes out once his pants are off. Yeah, which is harrowing because he is trying to rape her, but then we have the nice humiliating end for him when he is found with his pants down. Yes. And so, yeah, the rest of point four is kind of what happens. The wrap up with him. We already went through it. He's captured by Kozumi after Hidako writes a note explaining the whole con 
and is taken to the basement. But while that's happening, we see point five, which is the harrowing journey of escape for the two women. I was really struck during those cross-cutting sequences as the women are getting to their boat and getting out onto the sea and Fujiwara is being brought back to the manor and we have these overhead shots of a car driving through the mountains. And it was this thing of like, I hadn't realized I was feeling claustrophobic in the movie until I saw all these huge landscapes. That so much of the movie, almost entirely, is taking place indoors on this one piece of property. And it's always dark outside. It's always dark outside. And I felt myself accepting, like, these are the boundaries of the movie. And as soon as it opened up, like, it was this great triumph where I felt myself feeling what I'm sure the the women were feeling. But just the sense of sort of relief, okay, we're beyond that. It is a very nice feeling to escape, but at this point, it's still the two of them are forging a passport. Hidako knows her uncle-ish enough to realize that he would be searching for two women because you see his thugs checking every pair of women in the ferry station or train station. I guess train station, because they changed the ticket from Vladivostok to Shanghai. Yeah. Which, interesting to go to the Soviet Union in, like, 1920s. Well, they didn't go there. I know. I assume that when Fujiwara was planning on going there, part of the appeal was, like, Soviet Union in the 1920s, especially, like, Vladivostok, that's white Russia. If you don't bother them, they're not going to bother you. Right. So, Suki dresses up as a man with a hat and a mustache to... escape then as a you know married couple avoid the detection and then we get to see them on the boat they take the hat and mustache off they kiss and then we see them inserting bells into each other's vaginas to have sex like in one of the erotic books that Hidako read um and that's how the movie ends that is how the movie ends so well Do you find the romance of The Handmaiden believable? I'm going to say broadly, no. I think the schemes are very fun to watch, but are too complicated. And the schemes are inextricable from the romance. Like, it's just too much is going on. They've both betrayed each other. There's no reckoning with that. You have three schemes that are planned out from the beginning, basically all of which are successful. Yeah, you're right. Every scheme does become successful in its own way. Yeah. But ultimately, the best scheme wins, and they get together at the end. I'm happy about it. I just think that that's asking for a lot to go right. Yeah. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 the least, 10 the most believable, where would you rate this movie? I don't know. What are you feeling? Like, is a 4 too high? I was going to go with, like, a 3. Yeah. Because, look, they're both hot. I get why they're attracted to each other. It's just... They also don't really have anybody else around. So complicated. You got the class dynamic. You got the language dynamic. I do love that, at least the version of this that I watched, using different colors of subtitles for different languages, I thought was a really nice touch. Yeah, that was... I appreciated it. Because it's valuable to know when people are speaking different languages and who can understand one another and all that. Mm -hmm. And everyone seems to be bilingual. Yeah. To varying degrees. But I did appreciate that little note at the beginning. We pro- I assume we watched the same version where it was like, all text in yellow is in Japanese, all other text is in Korean. Yeah, nice and straightforward. Um, yeah, I think I think a three is a nice place for this one to wind up. A great movie. Great movie. 
worth a watch, maybe not with kids around. Do you think that Hidako or Suki is dateable? Um, I don't know that I want to date either of them, which is fair because they don't want to date me. True. The fact that each of them is willing to have a person committed to a horrible asylum against their will is a problem for me. And it doesn't seem like they move past the principle of it. Their objection is, well, now I'm in love with this person. Right. They both are very unprincipled people. Yes. It's just... And I understand how their circumstances have led them to that point, but nonetheless. But nonetheless, I don't know if I would date them, and I don't know how dateable they are, and I'm glad they found each other because I think that's the only relationship that would pan out. Seems like the best fit for both of them. Do you think they'll stay together? I don't know. I think so, because they're going to end up in a strange place, a new country where they don't speak the language, they'll only have each other, Suki will be entirely dependent on Hidako's money, there's not exactly a easily accessible lesbian subculture where they could find a rebound. I suppose that's true. But I can also conceive of a world where Suki steals all the money and runs away. Right, I mean, that's the thing. It's easy to imagine the train spotting ending. Yeah. But, I mean, they went through a lot together. Yeah, they sure did. Mark, here's an easy question to answer. Who from the Handmaiden would you choose to date? There's, like, no good options. Correct. I guess the least terrible option would be Hidako's Handmaiden before Suki, who gets screwed over. Yeah, I mean, she's just fired because she's not dumb enough. And she seems nice. Yeah, perfectly nice. (laughs) Going for someone who has the least amount of screen time. I mean, you kind of have to in this movie. Everyone's terrible. Ugh. Who would you go with? I think I have to go with the same answer, just because there's nobody here who who you could say is ethical in any way. Here's an interesting question, Will. I want to know your thoughts. Should there be a stage musical version of The Handmaiden? What do you think? It's not a no. I mean, I do think film is the ideal medium for this version of this story, because the atmosphere of the house is so much a part of what makes the movie work. I do think you could capture the claustrophobic, gloomy nature of the house on stage. Right, but if I want to do a musical of a movie with a creepy gothic house, I'm going to pick Crimson Peak every time. Well, yes. Because that's a movie that has these sort of operatic level emotions, whereas The Handmaiden, everything is subdued. Everything is hidden. That is true. I just think hearing all of the schemes laid out in song form could be entertaining. But that's the problem. It turns into a comedy, right? It turns into How to Succeed in Love and Murder. Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. That's the one. I just <laughs> I would watch that mashup. Yeah, I think it, it would become comedic in a way. And I don't think this story can support that tone. No. But it would be interesting. It would be a thing. There is a play of Fingersmith that premiered at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 2015, but it was not a musical. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. (sighs) All right. That's it for The Handmaiden. Very cool movie. It's on Prime Video. Worth a watch. Worth a watch. It rocks. Next week, we are returning to the work of director Will Gluck, the man who brought us Easy A, Friends with Benefits, and of course, Peter Rabbit to talk about his 2014 adaptation of Annie. So 
at the very least, we'll find out if they kept Franklin Roosevelt or swapped him out for some other president. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts really help others find the show. Mark, what is the best piece of dating advice you got from The Handmaid? Jesus Christ, I didn't think about <laughs> this at all. So I was thinking, during the first time that Hideko and Suki have sex, Hideko is winding up to it by saying, like, oh, he won't feel like he's with a corpse. Feel how cold my hands and feet are. That's the kind of thing you can't control. So it's always good, like Suki, to reassure your partner if there's just, like, a thing about their body, like cold hands that they can't control. Is sharing a lollipop can be a very intimate experience. Not interested. <laughs> it works for them. I'm happy it works for them, but also at some point, like, what are we doing with lollipops? <laughs> There's got to be something else. I just, like, how common were lollipops at the time? I mean, they existed. When were lollipops invented? I don't know, but Coney Island exists by this point, and I assume that <laughs> they had lollipops. Like, I assume you have some form of a lollipop going back pretty far, right? Because you just need... Rock sugar yeah, on a like stick. Rock sugar and a stick. So I guess I love lollipops. Um. Yep. All right. On that note. Um. So according to just as a, a last note, as according to Wikipedia, uh, the idea of edible candy on a stick is very simple and has probably been invented numerous times. But the first confectionaries that closely resemble what we call lollipops date to the Middle Ages. Wow. I guess it's just like the thing. That was getting me is that it looked like a Jolly Rancher pop. So there's a, uh, the first company to really use lollipop broadly is in 1908 in the United States. Okay. I buy that. Oh, but the term is first recorded in the English language in 1796. Wild. Yeah. Lollipops. Who knew? Did you ever make you know, lollipops? In- the octopus knew. <laughs> Did you ever make lollipops in school? No. I guess we made rock candy. When we were learning about what super saturated solutions are. Oh, that makes sense. That's a cool activity. That is not in my curriculum. You mean in your high school history classes? No, but the opening of Japan is, and I felt really good bringing some of that in here. Commodore Matthew Perry. That's the guy. A name I'll never forget because of friends. All right. Well, on that note, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. I like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade.